there. This is How to Choose, the show that helps you make better decisions and improve your judgment. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tessa. And I'm Ken. In this, our second season of How to Choose, we're exploring the topic of decisions at work. We're joined by a range of guests who talk about how they chose their particular career path and what decision-making looks like in their work. Now, Tess, have you ever had aspirations to be a professional athlete? Um, It might surprise you to hear this, Ken, but no, I have not. (laughs) Oh, it it does surprise me because you're very sporty. I'm super sporty and I've always been, I've always been successful in sport, but I'm a realist. I've known that I never had what it took to get to the top. The closest I probably ever got was being in a touring circus as a child. What? How is it that I'm only (laughs) hearing about this now? Tess, I should be interviewing you about your circus days. Um, Yeah, I peaked at age 12. Oh, did you? Uh, I'm sure it was glorious. Well, look, we're not going to be hearing about Tess's circus escapades, but we are talking today to a former elite squash player, Anthony Ricketts who, and I don't mention this in the the interview, but former world team squash champion, has won multiple Commonwealth Games medals and is overall an awesome guy. So hope you enjoyed the interview. Welcome today to Anthony Ricketts, who's joining us, the former British Open squash champion. It is fantastic to have you here with us today. And thanks so much for your time, Anthony. Thanks, Ken. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I guess by way of introduction for those who are unfamiliar with the sport of squash, and I just note that we do have people tuning in from around the world. It is a racket sport, obviously, played in a fairly tight and closed space. Uh, It's a game that involves a lot of skill and a lot of fitness is the other thing that I've noticed. But I suppose the thing that surprised me as well, I had this impression of squash being a, a game that was played in only a few countries. So growing up, we knew about the great Rodney Martin, the Australian world champion, and we knew about Jahangir Khan and some of the great Pakistani players. But what surprised me, uh, particularly as I was watching some of your highlights on YouTube, was seeing that you were playing around the world, playing Europeans, North Americans. And so it seems like there's a lot more to squash than uh, than meets the eye. Yeah, that's right, Ken. It's, um, you know, the sport is, I guess the sport itself is, as you, as you alluded to, is, is, is quite technical, it's quite tactical, um, and, and there's a lot of strategy involved. And also, I think for, for newcomers to the sport, it, it can be quite complex. As you say, you're playing in a confined space with, against an opponent with some rules that might not make obvious sense in the beginning. But when you package that up, it becomes, uh, it, it makes for a, a quite a spectacle and, and, and very exciting for spectators. And I, and I think that's part of the reason why, as you said, it's, it's really moved to all parts of the world. And at a professional level now where we are, although, as you said, we've moved from sort of Australia as a powerhouse to, to Pakistan and, and now Egypt's um, really, really the dominant force there's wow. also uh, top top ten players coming out of countries like Peru and things. So it really is touching on all, all parts of the world, which is great to see. Great to see that the sport continue to grow. Now, I think we would love uh, to hear your story. So how you came to journey from presumably a little kid who picks up a racket for the first time and belt, belts a ball around to uh, to reaching the pinnacle of the sport, uh, winning the British Open Championship. Yeah, that, thanks, Ken, and thanks for the opportunity. It was, um, I guess, that my journey was. Was one of of sort of timing and, and, and great luck. I think you know there's, there's many parts to uh, from being a kid, sort of growing up with the sport in Sydney, to then going on to play professionally and, and living in Europe. And I think there's probably a few phases to that. And and the first one was the club I grew up in, playing in Sydney. There was there was a great coach there, and he was able to put the structure in place for kids that really wanted to take the sport seriously. And I think 
without that first, you know, 10 years there or eight years there, it wouldn't have allowed, wouldn't have set me up for success later. You know, just getting the hours in, the structure, behaviours, characteristics as a young boy, he was able to really instill some good discipline and, and, and good attitudes in us. And from there, I was able to then uh, get picked up in the strange shooter sport as, as a young boy, 15, 16 years of age, whereby, you know, training took up another notch. We were, we were I was based in Brisbane then, being picked up from, as, as you meant before, Jeff Hunt was, was, was the coach at the time. So very lucky as a young 15, 16-year-old boy, you know, doing training before school, 5.30 in the morning, every morning that we'd head off to school and, and then come back and do another couple of hours in the afternoon. Um, and AAS were, were fantastic. We had a cook in the house. We, we all lived together. Sort of two or three years there really set me on another path where up at the time I got on the plane and moved to Europe as a 17-year-old, I had a lot of training already in my legs and, uh, and really understood what needed to happen although I didn't have any results to, to let me know that that training was going to put me on the right success. You know, give me, they'd given me some belief, but I wasn't really sure where that would go. And then and the final stage was there was, there was a great club in, in the UK where I moved with, with a fantastic coach there that AIS set me up with, and he really took the training to another level. You know, we, we were doing five, six hours a day, not all intense, but when combined to sort of uh, transition into a, into a world-class player. So without those, those people... And those structures at the time, you know, I really don't don't think I would have had that that success. So that's why I consider myself very lucky and grateful for those people. The thing that probably jumps out at me that you almost mentioned in passing is, oh, you know, we'd get up at 5.30 and, and train for a couple of hours. And then later on, oh, we'd do five or six hours training a day. And I know listening to commentators who would describe uh, what you brought to the game, the emphasis was very much on that incredible work ethic and focus. Is that something that's always been part of your psyche, do you think? think and, and it carries you through today that you're a pretty focused, determined individual? I, th- I think so. You know, I, I, I do reflect on this and, and we might talk about some of the coaching career I had later, but, uh, you know, that, that, that key characteristic of, um, of the real drive and passion, you know, which, which is a critical ingredient for, for not just me, but, but for, for, for anyone that's uh, willing to spend those, those crazy hours doing uh, the same activity over and over, really, with, with the pursuit of getting better each time. And so I think whether that came from those early years in Sydney with, with the coach I had there that was, as I said, was a very, was a real disciplinarian, really made me strive for success at a young age and, and, and in many respects set me up, whether that definitely would have had a part in, in those sort of characteristics that I had or whether it's innate. That I, that's just part of me. It, it's hard to say, you know, there's definitely things in, in life that I'm, I'm not driven and passionate about. Yeah. There's many other things that, that, I really, that I really am. And, and I think, you know, there's, there can be, uh, I think with any athletes, there can be an obsessive component to these things. And uh, I think to some extent that there has to be, you know, it's, it's all in, it's all or nothing. So where that comes from, I, I, I don't have a great answer for <laughs> But but I know it's in there. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Now, listen, obviously, we're talking uh, on our podcast about decision-making and judgments, and I can imagine that there were probably several decision points, even as you've sort of talked through a bit of your journey, how you got to where you reached in terms of the, the sport of squash. But there were certainly, I'm sure, decision points along the way where you had to choose squash or choose a, a different option. Can you talk a bit about those decision points and just reflect on how you decided to proceed. And I just highlight two things that I know, one that you've just mentioned, uh, which was the pushing forward uh, over to Europe without the certainty that you would be successful. But the other is also your struggle with injury, which is a common issue for many athletes. Can you talk us through how you navigated those decisions? Was it simple? Was it difficult? Who did you call on for help? 
Yeah, it's, it's an interesting journey. I think for, for most athletes, in many respects, the first decision is almost not a decision. You know, I think you start as a young kid and you're on there getting those hours in purely because of the, the joy it brings, I think, you know, it's, it's fun, you know, so you're doing the sport in the first instance because someone's allowed, created a structure, an environment, a culture that, that not only allows players to improve, but also make, makes it fun so they want to keep turning up each day. So I think the first decision point would be probably moving to the AAS as a 15 or 16-year-old. You know, that was, that was a big step, moving out of home at a young age to, to step into, into the environment there. But I, would, I, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. It wasn't, it wasn't a decision we sat down and worked hard about. I think at the time the brand of the AIS was, was quite strong, you know, getting a scholarship with them meant a lot. And in many respects, I felt like I'd achieved something by, by getting a scholarship there. So I don't think at that point we'd, we'd kind of sort of done a cost-benefit analysis on the decision <laughs> of what, what were the trade-offs. But we, we went all full steam ahead. And, and I think the next big decision after that was, was to, to move to Europe and, and really try and make, make a living out of the sport. I think that decision was already made when I, when I moved to AAS at 15. It was all I wanted to do at that point. I was, I was quite fixated on it. I remember being a young kid looking at, at international squash magazines, comparing myself to my equivalent age in the rankings in England or whatever it was. I was really, um, really curious to see how I'd match up against them. But I think the decision points that come in, in professional sport then when you're, when you're actually on the tour is w- whether you're going to be successful or not. And it, it didn't, I had, I had great success in my first year where I was able to to qualify for the British Open as, as a 17-year-old and going through five rounds of qualification. And I won all of them 3-2 as, as, as quite a young boy. And so I probably got a little bit, bit, bit cocky at that point and thought, well, this is going to be easy. You know, I'll, I'm getting through and I, was, I think I was playing the number 13 in the world as, as, as a young boy and he, he beat me convincingly. But I, I think I thought, well, this is this is for me. But that, that confidence quickly dropped when I think I went nearly a year without with barely winning a match, you know. So, so I do remember the influence at that point, you know, when I was talking to, to Rodney Martin, for instance, who you referenced earlier, who was coaching me at the time, saying, look, you know, am I going to make it? Is this, is this something that's going to happen or am I just going to be sort of floating around? And, and he, he was able to give me a lot of confidence so the other coaches around me that there's talent in there that, that there's going to lead to success, but it's just not going to be easy. It's not going to happen overnight. There's going to be wins and losses. So the, the willingness to continue, I know a lot of my, my, my colleagues at the time did drop out. They didn't keep going. They went into coaching careers or did other things. But mm. but the, the confidence those people I respected and trusted was probably what, what kept me going. Mm. And, and with the injuries, as you, you said, I had, I had sort of five knee operations wow. throughout my career. So every couple of years I was having a new one and my ranking would drop down and I'd have to go again. But they weren't really decision points in terms of will I keep going? I was always determined to get my ranking back up and, and, and try and get some titles under my belt. But I was cognizant of the fact that it wasn't going to last forever. You know, it was going to be a short career. I think I knew that pretty early on. I, I, my last match, I was sort of 27, 28 years of age, which wow. which was quite young to be stopping. So I think that did, you know, allow me to, to, to realise that this wasn't going to go on forever and that uh, I had to be successful as quick as I can because <laughs> it was probably going to work. Uh, Going to be going to be ripped away from me. So those decision points, the, the, the ability to do the career was was always well and truly made early on. And I think to keep going under adversity was was really the people around me that, that gave me the belief that I could that I could keep going. And uh, and there was some some success ahead of me. Yeah, it, it's very interesting because even as you're talking, I'm thinking about the fact that there's only a small percentage of your professional players in any sport who are at that pinnacle. So it's, it's really probably a, a question of of working out well what are your goals, and then what makes a um, 
a meaningful career because there is no tour if you've only got your top 10 right <laughs> yeah it, it's a great it's a great thing you know it's a, it's a very good question and you know i think when i when i came through there was a bunch of us from australia that were all pushing each other you know so the the normalized standard of success w- was very high mm. so you know my best friend was 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 four in the world you know wow um, and, I, and the club I went to in England, um, Rodney Martin had trained there before he was, he was world champion. There was Sarah Fitzgerald and, you know, there's, there's a stream of successful players. So I was really pushed into an environment of, of high achievement. The, the standard basis of success though, that was, was, was quite high. But you're right, there's, there's a big tour out there and I think, you know, the ranking list goes down to four or 500 in the world, you know, wow. and I think, you know, as again, I was just lucky that I was involved in the sport where the expectation of the Australian shooter sport was that you were going to be, you know, British Open champion or, or, or a Commonwealth Games medalist. That was, that was the sort of expectation that we, that we stepped into. I'm interested now, Anthony, to dive into a little bit to what life on the court is like. It's fascinating to watch in a very tight, enclosed, sweaty space with uh, hard walls and people jostling for for key position on the court to just understand some of the decision-making that goes on, even in relation to how you play out a match, how you play out a game, how you play out a rally. And for those who haven't watched Elite Squash, it's fascinating to see, and I was watching you playing Jonathan Power, and you you know, there's a rally that goes on for what seems like about 7,000 shots and then and finishes in a let. So then <laughs> you're thinking there's, a, there's an incredible level of strategy and perseverance. But I'm interested for you, you know, you're making decisions throughout a rally. You know, how much of that is instinctive? How much of that is sort of planned ahead? How much of that is you having studied your player and you know what you, you're trying to achieve, adjusting your game and your natural style to uh, suit a particular opponent? So there's there's a lot of parts to that question. Yeah, another great question. And and I think, you know, for a sport like squash, it is, it's, it's such a fast-paced game, as you said. The, the, the ball's moving around extremely quickly with, with rapid changes of directions happening in, in such a confined space. And, and I think that there's... Not that I want to set up one of those, those horrendous binaries, but but I think to some extent, a, pl- a player like myself was, I, I never thought of myself as having a huge amount of talent with, with, with the racket. So I was very much reliant on making the sport quite physical, making it, you know, demanding on the opponents. So it was played at a high pace that that really I was testing out their ability to to be able to, to play at that pace for, for a long period of time. So for me, it was it was largely the same strategy I employed over and over again. So it was almost each match was rinse and repeat, do it again, know your strengths, play to your strengths. And I think the opponent would know what they're going to get every time they walk, walked on, on the court against me. And in many respects, that was that was down to the fact that I, I just lacked the raw talent that, that you have with a racket. So I had to sort of play to my strengths. But I guess the flip side to this is is those real geniuses on the court. In squash, we, we you know it's normalised now to call them geniuses. I think where <laughs> where it is highly instinctive, where you, you're never really sure what they're going to do, what what player is going to turn up, what shots they're going to play. And I think the people that can play to that more instinctive base are high, are highly talented, and when they can pull it off, they are ex- exceptional. That that people really struggle to compete against. But it's so rare. It's just so rare that you find those those players. And I think the the normal ones are are the ones that they take a 
two hours prepared before the match. They get themselves into that frame of mind. They work out the, the strategy that they're going to employ, which looks to some extent similar to the one they deployed the, the match before, or that there might be some nuances. And, and they go through that cycle to get themselves in that, in that frame of mind. And then the flip side is those ones that seek to avoid any thought before they go on the court. You know, they're really, you know, they will, they'll keep away from the club. They'll, they'll seek to not engage on, on the match itself and just to keep their mind completely free. Um, so so they, allow, they allow instinct to be the dominant decision-making force that comes through. Not everyone can do that. And, and I've only seen a few players that can. I would much prefer to be to be that player <laughs> than the one I the one I was. But it's uh, I guess that involves you know huge amount of confidence in their in, in their ability. There's there's no guilt if they get anything wrong. They you know there's all this psychology that would go into getting into that state of mind. Where I was uh, you know played with a with a large amount of anxiety on the court. I think you know I was mm. very worried about the end result. I really wanted to be successful. If I lost, I took it quite badly. So I really played to probabilities in terms of well, here's the way that's gonna that's gonna give me the best likelihood of success. You know, that's not to discount the instinctive elements of it, but but there was certainly a model that I that I'd sort of set up to play. But I do remember, you know, watching these distinct contrasts in players before matches more when I was in my coaching career, in, in fact, where I'd look at these these instinctive guys that could pull it off and, and just thought, gee, that's uh, that's a different way to, to approach the sport entirely. Fascinating. What are some of the things that would surprise people both about what the game itself delivers and even the perhaps the cohort of players that uh, form that sort of inner circle of, of your top uh, ranked players? There's a strong camaraderie within within the sport. You know, as, as I said, the ranking list is quite large. There's number, you know, there's, there's hundreds of people playing professionally, but ultimately, you know, once once you're sort of the top end of the sport, you're it's the same guys flying around to each of the tournaments all, all around the world. You know, so you generally play around 15, 16 events professionally a year all around the world in different parts of it, and and outside of that, you have professional league matches throughout Europe. You do exhibitions increasingly in, in States, so you're on the move a lot, and and you're really flying around the world with your with, with your competitors, and some of those relationships obviously turn into be lifelong relationships that, uh, that 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 stick with you. And you know, some of my as I say, my closest friends are the people I I uh, you know played the final of the British Open in you know, Commonwealth Games doubles medals uh, matches with. So it, it's a good it's a good strong cohort. The game itself is you know is, is quite demanding and. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it really does rely on, on getting the right training in early. Like mm-hmm. anything, you know, we can go into those sort of Malcolm Gladwell books or, yeah. or the, the Jeff Colvin, you know, talent is overrated. You know, I'm a big proponent of those things whereby, you know, you need to get the hours in early in your career to, to enable you to be, to be successful, which, which might sometimes, be, you know, not be as well acknowledged compared to some other sports. Mm-hmm. So, Anthony, obviously you reached a point like every athlete does where you realised it was time for you to finish your playing career at squash. And as you said earlier, you know, you were still relatively young as a player at that point. Now, I can imagine that even if it did feel like an inevitable decision, that it could well have been a pretty heartbreaking thing to deal with as someone who perhaps felt uh, that there, you had more to give. Can you talk through how you dealt with that decision? Yeah, look, it was, um, as, I, as, as you said, my fifth operation, I was, I think it was about 27 years of age. And the, the doctor at the time reminded me that really our last goal was to get through to the next Commonwealth Games. So we'd achieved what we wanted. 
So we, you know, it was placed in context around. Look, we've we probably got to the point where we are, and and there's no decision to be made. It was it was made for me, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Although not a shock, the, the adjustment out of professional sport is very very difficult. You know, you're used to getting up each day with with a purpose, with direction, with a, with a goal that that gives you a return twice a day, whether it's just from completing a training session to playing a practice match or playing a professional game. So that reward that you get from doing it was taken away from athletes, which can be very hard. So I think from my perspective, the next thing was to to seek out to replace that as quickly as I could with with something else. And I was very lucky, as I said, throughout my career that I had had a number of people around me that had really ensured that I I kept a a broad view of of life and I, I didn't keep just fixated on one thing, although squash was demanded that, but I had other other interests in my life. So I really um, thought about, well, how do I get this this sort of kick away from squash? You know, I didn't want to like go cold and overnight and just, just step away from it. So I was lucky enough to keep my hand in the sport and, and be involved at a high level. But, but the focus was then about really pursuing something else that I, that I was passionate about or, or could teach myself to be equally passionate about. So that, that relied on on a number of false starts, to be honest, a, a number of things where I, you know, probably went down the wrong track and then had to recalibrate, but was had that belief again that I could recreate myself in, in another in another way. Took all sorts of great mentors around me to, to give me opportunities in different things, which I think is always part of people's stories in their careers. But, you know, if I had my time again, I, I think in many respects, retiring quite young did allow me to, to put my energy into, into other things and, and pursue other, other passions. Whereas mm-hmm. if that had happened later in my career, you know, I might not have had that, that same ability to do that. Potentially my, my outlook might've been different, although I would have had probably a little bit more success in, in the sport than, than, than what I did. So when you think about those false starts, as you described them, do you see those in hindsight as a valid process for finding your way? Or do you kind of see those as, well, I, I probably miscalculated there? Yeah, I think the, the false starts, I, I think... When I reflect on it and, and think about some of the some things I wanted to do with myself after, it was the balance between what could I do that was more likely to be successful. So uh, in terms of, well, what is the easiest way for me to start a new career mm. as opposed to what is the career I actually want to create for myself? Gotcha. And, and the one that's the one that's more tangible and the one that you can hold, I, I did open up those possibilities, but I wasn't really passionate about it. But it did give me a new identity, I guess, is or, or a belief I had a new career. Ultimately, I'd always steer myself towards the one that I was more passionate about. So, so passion was the overriding decision um, in, in how I, you know, chose to go and in, in what I did next. And I think that's reflected in, in the sport. You know, it, it comes to, to what I what I said earlier about really wanting to replace the kick, the the, the real energy that, that pursuing um, professional sport gave me, and, and finding something else to uh, to replace that with. So it's uh, not surprising that I went the the least uh, chance of or understanding of will this work out, just because that was what I was I was more interested and in, driven towards. It's interesting because that's a, a theme that's recurred throughout this season of the show where we've talked with people who have found success and success you can define in many ways, but found success in a range of different careers. And that theme of finding the point of passion and, you know, clearly as you've described that it's incredibly energizing, isn't it? Because you're thinking, well, you know, I, I want to give above and beyond to this particular project or job because it's something that you really care about. So I think that 
that alignment when you can find it is a wonderful thing. And it's it, it, there's a fair bit, I would imagine, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on this, but a fair bit of growing in self-awareness, isn't it, to sometimes? Sometimes the passions are obvious, sometimes you discover them over time. Yeah, that, that's right. I think, um, you know, as, as a parent now, you know, I, I think about what, what's important to me and, and my kids. And I, it really is allowing them to explore, you know, what are the things that, that, that gets them out of bed? What are the things they really are interested in and, and, and they love sitting down to do? And I think, you know, it's a, probably providing opportunities across lots of different things so they can uh, work out what's the thing that, that they really want to do. And, you know, that, that as you said, that can take time. It can take false starts. It can change changes in direction. But really, um, it is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a luxury, you know, professional sport is, is really a luxury, I think, to, be, to do something that um, you're passionate about and, um, and driven towards. And I think it can be a little bit harder outside of uh, in normal day-to-day life, if we can call it in, in that way. But, you know, it gives, it gives direction and purpose to, to, to what you're doing. So understanding what, what, what drives you is yeah, that self-awareness uh, is important. Now, you spent after squash some time as a, a coach of elite players. Again, from a decision-making point of view, it's quite an interesting thing, to, uh, I think, to reflect on the fact that as a player, you are controlling a lot of the decisions. As a coach, you're trying to guide and direct people to make good decisions. How did you find that? Yeah, your coaching's fascinating. And I, I really enjoyed, you know, had the opportunity to, to have a, a number of national coaching roles or a couple of national coaching roles. And you know, it, it is it is challenging. You know, coaches you know have a number of demands on them to be able to not only depending on what role they're in, but at, at a junior level, you really want to set up a structure for them to be able to get the hours in into their legs and into their technique, into their understanding of the game. But you've got to do that in a way that engages them, and that's uh, that can be that can be challenging. It, it's uh, it's not as easy to say we'll turn up here at four hours a day and we'll we'll uh, we'll make it happen. You really got to think about different individuals and what they're trying. Trying to achieve and trying to understand their needs and their and their goals, their lifestyles. You know, none of this stuff's aligned across different players. But then I think if you go to the sort of pointy end of the sport, it's really about supporting supporting the individual. I think making dramatic changes in the game. But the ability to do that is is, is lessened at that point because they've they've really moulded themselves into different ways. So it's about giving them giving that, that that belief and that support and letting them know that you know you're you're there part of the journey with them which, which takes another skill set i think in terms of the different things that coaches need need to bring and i think if we put it into some of the, the leadership books that you, you know you, you've been part of and that's that sort of at the start it's really you're trying to give players confidence over, over competence i think to some extent and, and building them up even when they don't have the skills and and then when they're sort of well established it's it's really trying to not lessen some of their confidence but it's it's almost trying to look for discrete ways that you can find the points that they need to think about and, and adjust. So it's that, that balance between those, those two things throughout their career. And, and look, you know, I work with a number of coaches throughout my playing career and I was able to pull on all those different, you know, leaderships or, or styles or approaches that they had. And some of the greatest coaches I came across, you know, would never even step on a court, for instance. They're able to engage the player open their mind up to the different styles of play out there and where they where they fit into that. Whereas other other coaches are purely you know about technical work and you get better for being by being more accurate, more precise in your shots. Other coaches were more about the state of mind you took to the matches. And I think all of those things are equally valid. And, and I think the demands on coaches today are they they're supposed to be able to do all of those things at, at once. And they're all quite unique skill sets, I think, 
yeah, I, I enjoy I enjoyed the challenge when I was going through my coaching career of, of trying to learn and, and, and grow and, and, and develop um, in a way that I could um, support all athletes across all uh, all standards from, from juniors all the way to, to, to Commonwealth athletes. Now, I think people won't be surprised having listened to you speak. You're a very intelligent and articulate person, but they might be surprised to know that you uh, went on to study a PhD after you'd finished your playing career. Now, was that something that you had thought of that that path of academia might be something I'd be interested to pursue. Yeah, I think um, you know the sporting career just opened up. You know, I travelled travelled the world into all, all different parts of it. It was uh, it was fascinating, and, and I think when I was travelling around, I was aware that gee, I don't really know anything about this crazy world we live in, you know. And uh, yeah. I started to really take a keen interest in it. international relations with what I, what I did PhD, and then and I took a keen interest when I, when I was playing, and then when I, I actually went to ANU not long after I'd retired and just picking up the study again and there's, there's, there's one professor there in particular that, that captured me straight away, you know, and I thought, mm. gee, I'm just going to learn so much from, from this guy. He, uh, he was able to, going back to the coaching things, he was able to engage with the students in a way that, that captured me and, you know, I read all these literature and, I, you know, looking at all the reference, you know, and I really got into it. So that probably after that, I, after, after those early undergraduate years, I think um, it was those different professors that really made me understand that was my passion was correct, that the, I really wanted to understand the, the different parts of, of the world and, and, and things like that. So at that point, I was probably fixated on on learning as much as I could and was keen to kind of contribute to the literature I've could even at my very humble level, you know, I was not world leading by any respects, but just being part of that was uh, was great fun. And I think it, you know, boils down again to those people that are able to capture your attention and, uh, and motivate you and inspire you. So again, not sure if it was innate my my, my drive to do it, but it, it was in there, and it probably needed just those people to, to open open up the possibility for me to, to pursue that that sort of academic route. That's a really interesting one. I th- that element of leadership and mentoring it's come up several times through our chat, and I'd love to perhaps get you back on a future show to explore some of that a bit more. Because you know, as you're trying to find direction in life, that there are key people that, for a range of reasons, will just ignite something in you, and and. And the flip side's true, right? I can remember the first time I studied history at school in grade nine and 10, and I, to be honest, had a pretty uninspiring experience, (laughs) came away thinking I would never want to study history again in my life, came back to it later and had a a fantastic lecture at uni and a course that I did. And I thought, wow, okay, this is something that I could be very interested in. So it's amazing how influential people can shape us with those decisions. So it's, it's very interesting to hear you talk about that. I think just as a final question, and it's been fantastic chatting with you today, we really do greatly appreciate your time. I imagine there will be people listening who are currently on a certain pathway in terms of a sporting career, perhaps some squash players, perhaps others who are pursuing a pathway for other sports. Do you have any sort of general advice to those people who are starting off down that pathway, perhaps distill some of the best gold that you got from from some of those great coaches and mentors? Yeah, I wouldn't want to make this sound too too cliche, Ken, but... uh... (laughs) You know, really, I, I guess the, the things that stand out to me when I reflect on it and, and, and in my coaching career as well is, you know, pushing back back in decision-making where we, where we started off, 
in many respects, in, in professional sport, you're making that decision very early. If you're waiting to make that decision, or should I, shouldn't make this? You know, do I want to be uh, part of uh, you know, well, in a, in a world leading sort of ranking or whatever it might be? You're actually having to make that decision quite early. You know, don't don't feel shy about about going early on this and, and putting yourself forward, saying I want to be one of the world's best in this sport. Because I think the longer you you delay that decision, the harder the reality it will be to achieve it. So I think you know those those first sort of early years in your career when you're still at high school, things like that are, are important. And 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 the other thing which which I think's probably come out is is really you know people around you are other only way you're going to you, you can be successful. You can't do it on your own. So putting in environments where you trust people that have your best interests at heart and, and, and believe in you and will be there for the long journey is um, is definitely a key ingredient as well. Yeah, wonderful. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really interesting to chat to you. And uh, I think there's certainly threads that we could pick up again if I can coax you back in, into another call. Love to. Now, thanks for your time, Ken. I, re- I really appreciate it and enjoy the conversation too. So Tess, what, what are your thoughts having listened to that fascinating story? Look, I've got a lot of thoughts, Ken, as always. Uh, but but one of the uh, first ones was just how unfair professional sports is as, a, as an industry because here is someone who is so talented and hardworking and yet I've never heard of him until this episode. It just seems like we've got this division within what sports we value. The haves and have-nots. Yeah, I like exactly. to th- think of him as an unsung hero because he is. I mean, an amazing player and you're right. And one of the commentators who I heard when I was watching him on YouTube and I will say, you've got to jump on YouTube and watch this guy play squash. It's crazy. But one of the commentators said, come on, Australia, you know, you need to get behind your squash players because you're producing these incredible athletes, but most of them are unknown back home. So yeah, very athletic, very fit, very focused, and also just a super all-round guy, like a really nice person. The thing that I enjoyed, and I had actually laughed when I listened to him say this, was, Ken, I was so lucky. Uh, you know, I was at the Institute of Sport and I got to get up at 5.30 every morning and train for two hours. And I thought, lucky is not the word that that springs to mind, Anthony, as you're talking about this. It just sounded like punishment. And whether you are a squash player getting up to go and train at the courts or whether you're a swimmer getting up to swim laps, that's tough. That's hard work. And I think that's one of probably many reasons why I'm not an athlete, uh, an elite athlete myself. But I think there's an element there of real single-mindedness that they are so focused on the goal that of course it's hard at times, but they're pursuing this with one intention in mind, and that is to reach the top of their sport. It's not enough to decide to be great at something, is it? You have to then decide to put in the work to make that happen. And you need to continue to decide to do that over a sustained period of time. And we know the science behind you know habits and the fact that it becomes easier mentally to do something once you establish a, a habit, that willpower element becomes simpler. But it still is a, a, an ongoing decision day after day. So Anthony describes that as an all or nothing approach, bordering on obsessiveness. And I probed a little bit as, as you heard. And he said, look, I'm not obsessive about everything. But he uses similar language when he described how he became fixated on learning uh, when he was studying international relations. So there's maybe a personality element, but I think there's a lesson there for people people to take away, isn't there, to say, if you want to get to that really high level, you need that element of of focus and single-mindedness. Yeah. And he goes into this a little bit too, when he talks about raw talent and how he he didn't see himself as being someone who was, you know, really naturally gifted. His strategy was about playing really physically, you know, keeping his opponent, you know, a bit off guard by playing at that intense level. 
Uh, and he had to do things like, you know, that two hours of preparation to get in the right headspace. But then mm. there were those very exceptional few who were what what he described as a genius, who were instinctive and were really hard to play against because, they, you know, they almost didn't have to think. They just sort of did and they would just rock up and go and play a game. They wouldn't have to do all that preparation. Yeah. And this actually reminded me of a, a Malcolm Gladwell podcast in in his series Revisionist History, where he he talks about it in the music world. And he compares Bob Dylan to Leonard Cohen. You know, Bob Dylan, someone who just smashes something out, can, you know, write something brilliant, you know, in a very short period of time versus someone like Leonard Cohen, who on his most famous work, Hallelujah, took five years to write it and did over yeah. 60 verses. Oh, yeah, re- work, a really hard worker. Yeah, that's funny. I heard another funny story about Dylan when he was recording the Desire album. You know, Emmy Lou Harris was singing uh, backing vocals for it. And she said it was really hard because Dylan didn't like practicing. You know, she was given the music, essentially. She might have had one run through and then it was, that was it. We're recording now. Although she's got a beautiful voice and, you know, stays in harmony the whole time you can hear at points where she's she's out of time because she doesn't know what dylan's going to do next yeah it's interesting isn't it that element of genius uh, in contrast to the the person who just plugs away and anthony described himself as that he said look when i go in to play a game it's pretty much the same every time opponents knew what they were going to get but he relied on being exceptional at that and even though it was predictable it was still good enough to to win him major tournaments um, another thing that I really loved, and I guess it reflects a passion that we both share, was the impact of great coaches and teachers on him as a, a player, as a junior player, and the way that he was able to be inspired, you know, that they could ignite that passion in him. And if you are a teacher or a coach, you might be thinking, well, I'm never going to reach those great heights myself, but you can be the catalyst that actually propels other people to those levels of excellence. And it doesn't even have to be, you know, to the heights that Anthony got to. I mean, I can just reflect on my own, you know, schooling and professional career. So having someone believe in you and encourage you and and push you to do things makes such a big difference. And I've definitely had more success than I would have without people, you know, backing me. Great point. And yeah, absolutely. You don't have to be coaching um, elite athletes to to have that sort of impact. You can have a life-changing impact on anybody that you're teaching and mentoring. So absolutely a big plug for mentoring there. He also talks about no reward without risk and this idea of you had to take some big steps, like even going to the AIS, you know, it's a it's a big investment in time. You know, he, he's not going to university. He's not taking that conventional path, which is a really big risk. And then same with moving to Europe. You know, it might not have felt like it to him at the time. That's right. Yeah, there was no guarantee. There was no guarantee he was ever going to win any games uh, no, on the exactly. professional circuit. And, and if you think about that and focus on the risk alone, you're probably never going to make these decisions, are you? You've, there's a point at which you've got to take that risk and step out. I mean, it's the reason I never became professional, Ken. It's you know, yeah. so many things I'm sure I could have been world number one at, but yeah. I was just always a bit nervous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. If only, if only. Imagine what you could have done. <laughs> but but on on the, the realistic side, like the reason I didn't was because I knew that I, you know, I wasn't t- talented enough or hardworking enough. And you kind of do need to do the cost benefits, you know, and he had that skill and that hard work from such a young age that it actually was worth it for him. But I think it's important in anything we do to really think about the pros and cons before making these kind of big decisions. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we talked about that, I think, when we were chatting. There's no world tour for squash or world tour for tennis unless you've got people going right down the rankings, down to 100, 200, 1,000. Now, those people aren't winning major tournaments. They're probably not winning tour tournaments either. So it's it's interesting, isn't it? And I think there's an element, though, in all of this that Maybe there is a big risk, but if you want to get anywhere, if you want to achieve great things, we're kind of restating this point, if you want to achieve great things, you do need to dream big. You do need to be prepared to put it out there and say, look, I'm I'm committing to this path because I feel like I've got a chance of achieving something great. And that's not easy in our culture in Australia, I know, Tess, and we often talk about the tall poppy syndrome here, that anybody who sticks their head up and you know makes a claim that they want to become something better than anyone else is cut down to size. We, we seem to take great pleasure in humbling people rather than encouraging people who want to step out and, and achieve something more. Something else that really jumped out to me, Ken, was his uh, comment about peers and how he had a best friend who was number four. Just this is a really great point, I think, that we, you know, we probably forget is that if you're training with someone, you actually want them to be better than you. You know, it's probably comfortable being being the number one in your whatever it is, running group or anything. But you actually want people better than you. So you're constantly pushing and having to strive and learning from others. And I think the same could be said for your professional experience too, that you you don't want to be the smartest person when you look around the room. You want people there who you're going to learn from and who have, you know, advice and and insights to share with you too. Yeah, and you might find you might have to say, "Look, I'm in the wrong room. Time to get into a new room." <laughs> but I think yeah. you're right. Yeah, it's about stretching yourself, isn't it? And he talked again about that the really high expectations in the Australian squash cohort that you're at the Institute of Sport, there's an expectation you're going to go on and win a major tournament. So I think that, you know, having those people around you and we mentioned he, you know, won the world team squash championship because there was a team of excellent people around him that he was playing with. So another thing was his patience. After squash, he said, as many professional athletes discover, it was really difficult. You lose that sense of purpose. You were single-minded on on one thing and suddenly it's not there anymore. So he said his first thought was, what is the easiest thing that I can do to start a new career and be successful? And he had a try of a couple of things. And then he realized, I'm probably asking the wrong question here. What I really need to do is what is the career that I actually want to create for myself? Yeah, this actually reminds me a lot of uh, our first episode with Jono, the paramedic, and his yeah. approach to finding a career. He, you know, he didn't go out and say, "I want to be a doctor or a lawyer." He he wrote a list and said, "What are the things that I enjoy doing?" Uh, and then he kind of backtracked from there and found a career that suited. It's a real twist on that process of searching for a career pathway. I think the other thing too is just our sense of perspective changes as we get older. If you're 20, early 20s, five years seems like a really long time to commit to something. As you get older, you look back and think five years is really not very long at all. And if it's going to take you five years to get that master's degree part-time while you're working, we would encourage you, go for it stick at it, persevere. Like most great goals, it takes time and effort to to achieve them. And the five years will go surprisingly fast. Yeah. And look, if you're in your 20s or 30s, you're probably going to be working to your about 100. So yeah, retraining right. is not a big deal. Yeah, exactly. So Tess, what's the main takeaway for you from this uh, episode? For me, it's that point about peers, uh, being surrounded by people who are 
you know, really talented and pushing you will make you more successful. So seek out those people in your life. For me, I think uh, it was single-mindedness and focus, just seeing someone who is able to commit so wholeheartedly and realizing that that's probably what's required to take you up to that level of expertise. Well, listen, if you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe to How to Choose and visit us at goodbetterright.com.au. Well, that wraps up season two, Decisions at Work. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. We'll be laying low for the next few months, but we do plan on releasing a very special episode to celebrate Christmas or you know Hanukkah or Christmas or whatever you celebrate it at the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, so keep your eyes in Festivus. Your for that. Festivus. That's the one I was trying to remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Well, look, we just want to say thanks so much to everyone for your ongoing support. Uh, if you found this season informative, interesting, and helpful, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. Don't be selfish. Share it with your friends, and please stay safe until we meet again. Early Festivus present for everyone. Yeah, that's right. How to choose underneath everyone's Festivus poll.